Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. There's only two sections left in Ephesians 6, but I'd be lying to you if I were to say that we're almost done. This section on the armor of God will probably take us about, by my best calculations, which you shouldn't take too seriously, probably seven or eight sermons. So this morning we're going to work through this text. We're going to fly over it. We're going to look at it. And then over the next seven, eight weeks, we're going to dive in and look at the incredible details of this text. So Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, would you grant us understanding? Would you grant us faith, Father, as we look at this text? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, this letter is addressed to Christians. It's addressed to those who have new life in Christ. So, Christians, believers, those who are born again, how do you think of your life? How how do you understand the experience of your life. Let me ask you this question. Are you living according to what's really true? Are you living according to reality? I'll never forget uh, the way Paul Tripp says, he said, he said, we don't live our life according to reality, 
we live our life according to the perception of reality that we have. And I'll confess to you that as I've been looking at this text and knowing it's coming up and spending much time reading about it and considering it, I can confess that though I would have gotten the answers right on a test, I don't know that I was living fully according to the reality of what this text says. We live in a culture, a materialistic culture in the sense that we've been trained that all that is true is what we see. And as Christians, we say, well, we know there's the spiritual world, and you would get that right on the test, but do you function, do you make your decisions based on the facts that the life we live is a spiritual battle? Now, I debated whether I use this as an illustration, because I don't want someone to leave the sermon at the beginning and not listen to the rest of it. So hear me, I by no means am making a political statement or trying to point you to uh, this person as I quote them. I just find it interesting. Uh, so many of you might be aware of Tucker Carlson. And Tucker Carlson, for many years, has been a political uh, uh, personality. Uh, he spent his life trying to change the world through politics. But he's had a change recently. As a thinking man, as he looked at the world, and he was trying to figure out what it is He's watching, and as he's thinking about the purpose of his life, he's saying, this world that I look at, I can't make sense in political terms. I can't make sense of it through politics. How does the world function? Is it by good politicians and bad politicians? He's saying, I could no longer see the world like that as he looked at the issues of his day. And here's what he said of those issues. Those issues are manifestations of some larger force acting upon us. As a man who was not religious, he grew up Episcopalian, he never went to church, never read his Bible. He said, the only way I could make sense out of the world I'm looking at, is that we are being acted upon by a larger force. And he said, it's obvious. I'm quoting him. Completely obvious. And then he had two points of application. He says, I think we should do two things. I think we should say that. So as you... Listen to Tucker. If he holds true to what he's saying here, he thinks that when a microphone in, is in front of him, that he should point to something else that is happening beyond what our eyes can merely see or perceive. 
And he says, secondly, maybe we should take like 10 minutes a day to pray about it. Here's Tucker Carlson. I found out since even he said this quote, he's reading through the Bible and he's articulating the sovereignty of God that though people of their own free will act, they're not the end of it. That God is even sovereign over free acts. So it'll be interesting. Let's pray that the Lord, if He hasn't saved him, that He would save him. If you have your Bibles, I want to show you before we dive in. I want, I want to show you an interesting text in 2 Kings chapter 6. We'll begin in verse 8. This is an account of an experience the king of Syria kept having as he was warring against Israel. And Elisha kept giving the king of Israel information that could only come from God himself. So here's what we read. In verse 8, he says, Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, all right, and then let's just, let's just move down for the sake of time to verse 13. Uh, well, let, let me summarize what happened. So here's what would happen. The, the king of Syria would go to attack Israel or go to set up camp, but it was like Israel knew their every move. And so the king's like, we got a traitor here. There's someone spying and giving away our location to Israel. And someone said, no, it's the man of God. It's Elijah, Elisha, that keeps telling them what you're doing. So he wants to capture Elisha. He says, well, I know how to give, stop this. Let's capture him. So let's pick up in verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is, that I may seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God, so this would be Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? No hope. (laughs) He looks out. He sees the armies around them. Elisha's dead. He's dead. So he thinks. What shall we do? He said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. The prophet is praying that it's a a great miracle and it's for one guy. Lord, open his eyes that he may see reality. How it really, actually is. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, verse 17, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses 
and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. And he struck them with blindness in accordance to the prayer of Elisha. You live according to reality. To the way the world really is. How it actually is. Do you wake up in the morning and know where you're living? Do you know what is going on? Do you know there's a war going on? Have you been briefed about your life, about the battle that you are in? I'll never forget my, you're probably sick of hearing about it, but it's the impact a mission trip can have on your life. When I got to go to Africa and spend 11 days with Mark and go into villages, that first day in the villages, and Mark already told me, you're going to get to the point where Jesus is the Son of God and a goat's going to kick over a table or chickens are going to go crazy. I'm just telling you, it's what's going to happen. Don't freak out. Christ is Lord. You're going to experience this. And sure enough, the first elders in the village that we were sharing with, there was a big disruption right at that point. Mark just kind of looked over and winked at me, like I told you. And then after that, we got to share with probably like 15 young men that were between the age of 18 and like 23, I would say. They kind of hang out in, in age groups. The women are all together, the men are together, but then the older men are together, the younger men are together, and we're walking by, and they said, what are you guys doing here? Rarely ever see someone who's white. Many of them have never seen someone who's white. This is how remote these villages are. And so they gather around, and Troy Hollingsworth and I get to share the gospel. Troy gives his testimony, and then I get to share the gospel, and Mark is translating. And he had warned me, he says, when you get to the point where you talk about the Son of God, they pray every day that God has no son, and so there's probably going to be a hubbub when you get there, and I might have to just talk. It might be tough to translate as, as I got to kind of settle that down. So, okay. The beauty of Africa is they, they'll sit there and listen to you for hours. You don't have to hurry like in America. You're wasting someone's time. So they're all sitting around. We're going through the gospel. And I get to the point of who Christ is, how he's the son of God, how he came to be a sacrifice. And one of the guys, he's the most muscular and most scary looking guy. He had kind of tribal cuts all over his face. He stands up and he goes to every person. And he's goes to every single person, puts his finger in their face. And I thought, man, Mark, Mark knows how this goes. He warned me this would happen. And he gets done, and Mark's shaking his head. He's not winking at me. And he says, well, I, I said, did he just tell him that Jesus isn't God's son? And he's like, no. 
this man went around and he put his finger in every man's face and said, these men are telling us the truth. But it's not enough that you believe it in your head. You've got to believe it in your guts, in your heart. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Is this, ask him if he's ever heard this before. Mark asked him, never heard it in his life. And so as I laid down that night in my little one-person mosquito net tent, and I took out my journal, you want to know what I wrote? I said, I knew the Holy Spirit was real, and that demons are real, and that Satan's real, but I know it in a different way tonight. I could like see it. It was it, there's no way else to explain my experience other than the world we live in is not just made up of stuff. There's something more that is going on. Joel Beakey writes this. Because not every experience not everyone experiences something quite like that. Here's what he says. An encounter with Satan or his host of demons does not necessarily involve extraordinary experiences. So when someone's looking at their life and they're saying, am I really living in a spiritual battle? He's saying an encounter with Satan and his demons does not necessarily involve extraordinary experiences. All believers in Jesus Christ are engaged in the spiritual war against unseen enemies. No Christian can escape the front line of battle. Every disciple of Christ is at the tip of the spear. Now, some Christians forget it, but it's a fact, and they can't get themselves out of that fact. If you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, into Jesus Christ, you are in a battle whether you know it or not. You have enemies that are seeking to destroy you. And I'm guessing that as we go through the next eight weeks, you're going to say, I knew about my enemy. I don't know that I really took him as serious as I ought to take him in light of what the Scripture says about his power. Demonic, cosmic powers, spiritual forces and authorities of another world that are targeting you and are targeting me. Have we really actually believed? Have we meditated on and understood what is before the Christian? What does this spiritual battle look like? We're going to spend a lot more time on this. But let me just give you a little taste. That's all we're doing this morning. Have you ever been at worship, been worshiping at church? Or been reading your Bible? And all of a sudden, in a moment, one of the most evil thoughts just pops in your head. 
just comes to mind. And you, you just think to yourself, where in the world does such an evil thought come from? And almost instantly after you think that thought, you're being accused. How can you even be a Christian? How can you even be anything? No, it makes sense if you're dabbling in evil things or you're watching an evil movie and you've been thinking about evil. But have you ever just had the experience that just... Now, there's enough evil in our flesh that can, that can come from within without Satan. How do you think about your life? Those who are married here, has your spouse ever been conversing with you and all of a sudden you respond in a harsh, unkind way and almost immediately you step back and go, where did that come from? Well, as Alistair Begg says, all sin is an inside job. So we're all accountable for any sin. We can't just blame the devil. But the Bible says it's not just merely an inside job. Adam and Eve didn't just happen to sin in the garden, but they were being attacked spiritually in the garden. How do you think about your normal day? Moms who are taking care of children. Fathers that are seeking to lead your wives with your employees. Are you just doing stuff? Are you just doing the physical stuff and then you have in your mind, there is a spiritual battle. Sometimes it comes and attacks me when I'm alone, but the rest of the time I'm doing the normal stuff and then sometimes I admit there's a spiritual battle. How do you conceive of your life? These are questions that would be good to think through. I can assure you this. If you're living according to your new life in Christ, if you're walking in love and humility and in unity and being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another rather than walking in lust and pride and divisiveness and drunkenness and selfishness, I can guarantee you it might be the opposite of what you think. If you're walking in the Spirit, the battle is more. The battle is bigger. His kingdom, this evil kingdom that Satan is the prince over, is threatened when you're living a life for Christ. There's a false gospel out there that says if you're walking with God, things will go easier. Things will go better. It's not true. It's a lie. That wasn't the experience of Jesus' life. Jesus is baptized. His public ministry begins. And what happens? Forty days in the wilderness. Satanic attack on Christ for 40 days. And then what does Jesus do? He goes into the temple and he takes on the evil, demonic activities happening in the temple. And then he walks through villages, and what does he do? He casts out demons from people who are possessed by them. 
and he preaches of a new kingdom. He preaches of a strong man that is bound up and whose house is going to be plundered. And then how does Jesus' life end? He's in a garden sweating drops of blood as Satan is attacking him from beginning to end. The first Adam, the second Adam. This is true. This is real. It doesn't matter what country you live in. It doesn't matter if you've taken science classes and you're more intellectual than believing in spiritual things. Those are the facts. That is the reality of the world that we are living in. I thought this was interesting. John MacArthur writes, many pastors are tempted to leave a church or other field of service when things begin to get difficult. But an easy ministry may be a weak ministry because where the Lord's work is genuinely uh, being done, Satan will not fail to oppose it. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are not only God's sons and servants, but also His soldiers, and a soldier's job is to fight the enemy. You live for God, your life's going to get harder. You put on the whole armor of God and prepare yourself for battle, and your life will get harder, but it's the only sane way to live. Because to avoid doing that, you haven't left the battle, you just begin to feebly give up to the enemy, who, by the way, is more evil than you can ever imagine, and he has his heart set on your destruction. He hates you. He hates your kids. He hates your family. He wants to destroy you. You can have a relatively easier life on earth. Just be a lukewarm Christian. But if you want to live for Him, if you want to live the only life that makes sense in light of reality, you're going to experience struggle. Let me just read through a few texts. 1 Corinthians 16.8. Here's what Paul says. He says, but I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Someone might say, okay, why is Paul going to stay till Pentecost? Here's why. For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. You see how those things seem opposite? You think Paul would say, there's a wide door open for me because everyone's just receiving the gospel. Just going easy. But he says, I'm staying here because there's a wide door open and there's many adversaries here. There's the Lord's work to be done here. Philippians 1.27, this is an interesting definition of unity. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's unity, right? And not frightened in anything by your opponents, for this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. 
He says, I hope when I come and see you, I see unity and I see opposition. Because if there's no opposition, it might be a sign you don't know God. You haven't been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So often, people describe the battle the fight against the power of sin in their life. And the questions they so quickly go to is, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not saved. And you ask the question, well, how do you think your life ought to be going? See, what they described is this this battle that's going on that is hard and is miserable to some degree. And they have in their mind that what true salvation would look like, it is true the moment you believe the punishment for your sin is taken care of. It was taken care of on the cross 2,000 years ago. But the power of sin hasn't been. You're in the middle of a waylay, of a fight. You're taking punches. And you need to fight back. So as we fly over this text, that was all introduction. We're really not going to spend a lot of time here. But what I want to do is I want to whet your appetite. I want you to begin to start praying and start thinking about what's actually true. And then I want you to evaluate how you're living your life. Is it according to the reality of what the Bible says what's actually true or just what seems to be true from your perspective. So as we do this, I want to, I'll just quickly touch on what you have in your notes there, just kind of introduce it to you. And I want to point out a couple of emphasis that, that Paul puts on this text. All right? Look at the first word. He says, finally, finally. So I think this is what we're supposed to see here. He has a lot more to say after he says finally. But here's what he's attaching the armor of God to. Everything he has just said. Right? This whole book is about what? You're nothing if you're not united to Christ. Being united to Christ is everything to you. Because you were even chosen Christ before the world began. Your whole life is bound up in your union with Christ. This is what we see through these first three chapters. Your life is bound up in Him. And then he talks about church relationships. As he's talking about walking in this new life. Practical application, church relationships, family relationships, husband and wife, children and parents, employer-employee relationships. And then he says, finally, which means this spiritual battle he's talking about is talking about all those normal aspects of your life that you might not be apt to see as a spiritual battle. So, that's 
the first thing I want to point out. And then secondly, I just want to highlight some superlative words, all right? So just look at this text with me. Look at verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God. This isn't some little skirmish. This is put on the whole armor of God. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. These aren't spiritual gifts. It isn't like, oh, so I got the shoes. I'm the evangelist. I'm going to bring the gospel over here. My feet are ready to share the gospel. You got someone else that has the sword of truth. You know, that guy's the apologist that has the angry podcast that's always calling people out. You know, he's got the sword. And then, you know, you got the breastplate of righteousness people that point to that. That's not what he's saying. He's calling every individual to put on the whole armor of God. And if he's calling for the whole armor, then this battle is serious. Look at what he says at the end of verse thing. And having done all to stand firm. He says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be, be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Here's how your life is described. Live it as though you're all in. There's no such thing as 80% in the Christian life. The Bible never, we, we do that. <clears throat> but Paul says, that's not what you're called to. We are called to have done all to stand firm. Look at what he says in verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. In every one of them. Look at verse 18. Praying that all times in the Spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit. And then he says, with all prayer and supplication, just in case you do, I guess, some prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. All right? I just want you to see it. As we're looking at this text, this is full on, gird up the loins of your minds for battle, And so we're going to look at the source, the power source that we have in the battle. Look at verse 10. Finally, brothers, so now we're just going to go through your notes. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. You are not called to fight in your own strength. You can't do it. Once we look at the enemy, you're going to realize how silly it is for you to live a day not in the strength of His might. I think I might have used this illustration not that long ago, but at the beginning of, of Dances with Wolves, you have Kevin Costner. He's about to get his leg uh, amputated. He says, forget it, I'm going to commit suicide. He gets on his horse and he rides in front of the enemy lines. 
you know, this is the Civil War. They're down in barracks, and they all shoot at him, and they miss. And then he comes back, and they shoot at him again. Everyone else is laying down. You know, they're joking around. They'll put a helmet on a gun to get other people to shoot at him. You know? You know how many Christians wake up in the morning? Be like waking up on those battle lines and just stand up, stretch, no shield, no helmet, no weapon, just start strolling. As though the war isn't going on. Has this person lost their mind? Do they not know what's true? They start their day without prayer, without Scripture. What confidence they must have that they don't really live in the world that God says we live in. What confidence they must have in their own strength. So we're going to look at what it means to be strong in the Lord. We're going to look at the power source. Then we're going to look at the plan. The plan is to put on the full armor of God or to take it up. Isn't it interesting? Though they're new in Christ, so they're born again. They're not born again with the armor on. But they're called now in the new life to put it on, to take it up. This is the effort of the Christian life. God hasn't left you without armor, without weapons. But He's not going to put it on you. You're called to put it on. Alright? So we're going to look at the plan. So... Then we'll just go through the whole armor of God. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. You get more offensive. It's, the sword is a little bit less like armor. It's more of an offensive weapon. And then he goes into praying in the Spirit. You see? So we'll look at the plan and we're going to look at the purpose. Look at, this, look at this text. What's the purpose? Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that, what does it say? You may be able to stand. That's the purpose, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Look at verse 13. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. So there's the purpose. There's a battle going on, and you're to stay on your feet. You're to stay on your feet in battle, not to be knocked down, not to give up. You're to fight. It's not in your strength. It's in the strength of his might, with his word and his spirit and his righteousness. But the purpose is to stand. So we'll look at that. And then we're going to look at the powerful enemy. We'll take a couple weeks to do a study on Satan and his demons and their schemes. Because this text says that not only is he real, but he's scheming. And he hates you. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a murderer. 
and he's the most crafty of all creatures. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may stand because that's your enemy. That's what the text says. That's who you're fighting against. You're not fighting against flesh and blood. Your wife or your husband is not your enemy. Your children are not your enemy. Your neighbor is not your enemy. When there's dysfunction and when there's fighting and there's rebellion, there's something else going on behind the scenes that makes sense of that conflict more than that person sitting across from you. And so we'll look at the enemy and then we'll consider prayer. He talks about persevering prayer. He talks about interceding prayer. He talks about prayer for the proclamation of the gospel. This is where we'll be going the next couple months. I want to end with this. Look at Colossians 1.9. Colossians 1.9. Here's what Paul says. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. All right, this is intercessory prayer, right? This is, it's like, whoa, he must, be, he must be intense. He must be all in with all prayer and supplication for all the saints. What's going on? See, Paul's living according to reality. We have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, meaning you can't get it by your own experiences in your own gut feelings. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, because that's what we need, according to his glorious might, it's his power, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And then look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. There's a domain of darkness. There's a prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This isn't dualism in that there's good and evil and they're both equal in power. Satan is a created angel. But there is the kingdom of darkness for which every unbeliever is described as Satan being their father. Because where there's sin, it's connected to Satan. From the very beginning until now, he's at work in unbelievers. And then look at what it says. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is why we have a continual battle. Because, Christian, you've been transferred. So many Christians are getting waylaid 
and beat up because they're not living according to reality. They don't actually believe the world works the way the Bible says it works. They think the answers to changing Aberdeen or changing our country or changing the world are basically with these politicians in ideas of, of, of man. They're getting waylaid because they're fighting without armor or weapons that they would have. Satan, the liar, is relentless. He's a tempter. He's a deceiver. He's crafty above all other creatures. His desire is to not make you stumble. He wants to destroy you. But the good news is, Jesus, our great Savior, is a king. And he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And he's put Satan and his demons to open shame as he triumphed over them in the cross. He's brought you to new spiritual life so that you can understand his word. A non-believer can't put on the armor of God. They can't even understand the gospel apart from the Spirit of God working in their life. He rescued us from the punishment of sin. He's delivering us right now from the power of sin, and he'll rescue us from the presence of sin. What a great Savior we have. And what we're called to do is put on the full armor of God. 